Check, there we go. Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here. New faces, old faces, friendly faces from other states hanging out here, which is fantastic. Uh, I want to start this morning, uh, first of all, thank you to Jackie for that tie-in. I love it. I'm going to have to figure out how to weave that into this carefully. Um, thank you to Clark, who uh, gave uh, enough of a, of a, of a twist in, in how we read Scripture to understand maybe why Cornelius had uh, the reaction that he did. And for the most part, we're going to stay uh, pretty close to that section today. Uh, and so I'm going to invite you to uh, find that section in, in your Bible in front of you. You've got a Bible uh, directly in front of you if, you if you need use of that. If not, uh, a digital one always works. Um, and I also have to say, uh, for Clark, who, who came and talked to me beforehand, uh, I intentionally cut Clark off early. So I don't want you to think that Clark just forgot the rest of the words or like didn't read the rest of the section. It was a choice that we had to make in that if you keep going much further, Clark has to read the entire chapter for it to make sense. So it was either like Clark reads nothing, part of something that sort of ends on a cliffhanger or the entire section. And so I went with part of the entire section so that we could go through the rest of it together. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to go through that piece just knowing that even, even in this section, uh, just those first four verses, we already reveal the premise of uh, the sermon that I, that I want to preach today. You can see it up here. Uh, I have titled my sermon, My Cat Does Not Believe in the Sanctity of Marriage, which uh, this is one of the only times I've received feedback on a sermon before I've preached it. So I guess catchy titles are a thing. I didn't, I didn't know that was going to be the case, uh, but I'm, I'm glad some of you got caught with it and are excited about it. I hope it lives up to uh, what you think it is. I should also say this is only a portion of the title because it only fits in that section uh, any longer and then it gets out of control. My entire title is My Cat Does Not Believe in the Sanctity of Marriage and Other Lessons That I've Learned in Impatience. And so if nothing else, maybe that reveals a little bit more. Uh, goes beyond uh, that sort of ellipses that Clark left us on. Uh, and maybe this is more of a warning sign, more than just a sermon title, in that uh, as we dive through this topic of waiting and this series on what does it mean to wait on the Spirit of the Lord, uh, the identity of impatience sometimes comes into it. And as we're closing this off, I thought I'd take a week to talk about the identity of patience and how it works in the lessons that we learn. And so if you're there, and if, uh, if you haven't found it yet, the Bible in front of you, page 1091, is exactly where we're going to be. But let's, uh, let's pray before we get started. Father God, it is good to be in your presence this morning. It is good to be before you here. Uh, we know that we are waiting on your spirit, and God, today it feels like it's already here. And so God, be patient with us as we learn to understand what it means to interact with that spirit, to follow it, to listen to it, and to recognize that sometimes we will go off track with it, that we'll learn the lessons maybe we weren't supposed to. But God, be patient with us as we're patient with you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's go back again. We'll start in uh, chapter 10. We'll go through verses 1 through 4. 
again, we're going to meet a man named Cornelius. As Clark already noted, he's Italian. Uh, he is an archery specialist due to the fact that we know that this battalion that he's a part of, and I'm interested just really quick, is anybody reading the King James Version? They have the King James Version? Yeah, my man. Um, when you get to uh, the end of verse 1, will you tell me what you have written there? It says, uh, there's a man named Cornelius. He's a centurion known uh, in what was known as the Italian, what does your Bible say? What is it? Band, which I find so interesting. To give you an understanding of, of what we're dealing with, this cohort is a band of basically militia members. And so you have an Italian militia, an Italian mafia of sorts, but they're volunteer mafia workers. And this band of centurions work with bows and arrows. And so they go through Rome. It's a bunch of volunteers. They are working through this. And this is the man that we meet at the beginning. We know this about Cornelius. We know that he knows who God is. We know that Cornelius goes to church. We know that he pays tithe. We know that he raised a Christian family and that this is not the first time that Cornelius has prayed. We know that and we need to keep that in mind because what happened next is sort of based around that identity and how it offsets some of the things that we're talking about. It says that the ninth hour of the day, which you can set your watches to in this case, the ninth hour of the day is three o'clock in the afternoon because the day starts when the sun comes up. And typically the sun comes up at six, so you count nine hours past that, you get to 3 p.m. This for most Christian traditionalists is the time for mid-afternoon prayer. And so we know that Cornelius is on the clock, that he's following the schedule, and that he is praying. A practice that Cornelius is well versed in. Except this time, something a little different happens when he's done praying. Verse seven, uh, verse 3 here says, Cornelius clearly saw in a vision an angel of God approached and then said his name, to which Cornelius, it says, stared at him in terror. And then Cornelius says, what is it, Lord? Cornelius knew exactly what was going on. He even correctly categorized who was speaking to him. And he knew why it was happening because he just prayed and he knows now that the Lord is answering. A polished veteran in Christianity still responded in terror. Cornelius, who is unsure of why this encounter is happening, jumped to whatever conclusion he jumped to and experienced that conclusion as fear. The reality is if he would have just waited for the Lord to speak, waited for the message to come through before jumping to those conclusions, he would have spared his nervous system the jolt he was about to go through. But unfortunately, Cornelius was about to get a lesson in impatience. I once had a lesson in impatience myself. I was uh, walking through the Phoenix airport in 2011. And I, uh, much like Jackie's story, had need of certain facilities inside of the airport. That's as far as I think I need to go with it. So I was quickly walking from my gate to these facilities. 
at this airport, which I think is called Sky Harbor, as you turn right into the men's restroom, there is a blind corner. And if you are walking very, very quickly, you can sometimes find yourself directly contacting people who are walking out. I happen to contact the person who was walking out. Does anyone want to guess who I bumped into on the way out of the bathroom? That's right. It was John McCain. Senator John McCain. And I hit that man about as hard as I have ever hit any human being with my body ever. And John McCain was not alone. John McCain had other people with him with very nice dark suits. And I smacked him directly into a wall. This is 2011. If you do the math on a man who was born in 1936, guess how old this man was that I assaulted? 75. That's right. Elias, two for two today. I hit a 75-year-old man directly into a tile wall in front of his Secret Service agent. I'm glad you're laughing. I did not laugh. But you know what I did? I did realize exactly who it was the moment I hit him. Very distinguished man. I knew exactly who it was. And I said, oh my God, Senator, I am so sorry. And he pushed himself off of the wall and said, no problem, son, and kept walking. Hashtag, who's your daddy? Or at least that's what I tweeted as soon as I stopped sweating because I wanted to mark the occasion in case my body went missing and somebody needed to know what happened because I was not so sure things were going to be okay. And I immediately jumped to conclusions. And I thought, I think you go to Guantanamo Bay for doing what I just did. And I'll be honest, every time I saw John McCain for the rest of the time he was alive, I always saw him walking very stiffly. A little bit of guilt. I've since learned it probably wasn't me, but I didn't help. I hit that very old man very, very hard on my way to the bathroom. And unfortunately, in that moment, I had a lesson in impatience. And I'll tell you this right now, I do not walk quickly around blind corners anymore. I will almost always giraffe my neck <laughs> like a weirdo into bathrooms face first, just so I don't do that ever again. And I wish I hadn't learned that lesson. I wish I hadn't have learned that lesson the way that I did. But my impatience allowed for that lesson to be learned the way it was. Like Cornelius, I knew exactly who I had run into. And I assumed I was in for a rough day. I'm going to borrow a term from Brene Brown, who talks about this in a TED Talk in a book that she wrote. Brene Brown is an author. She's a storyteller. Uh, she's a podcaster. And uh, she talks about the gritty first draft. The gritty first draft is the thing uh, that we do as our knee-jerk reaction to things. We just, we make an assumption about something, and then 
Brene says that in order to be vulnerable with that information, to open yourself up to processing it in a different way other than letting it rattle around your brain and just sort of let it bounce around that echo chamber, she says to write down the gritty first draft. She even says to have your phone with a, with a post in it, like notes, that says gritty first draft and just to keep a running tally of all the things that you think so that you can process through them outside. And in that moment, I learned in that lesson all the grittiest things I thought I was going to learn from this scenario. When in reality, that man could not have been nicer to me in the situation that we were both in. But I had already decided how this was going to go. And I think Cornelius did the same thing. He had decided, this has never happened before. This is new and different. That must mean bad. I thought I was going to be tortured, hung from my toenails for all of eternity. I think Cornelius thought, uh-oh, an angel of the Lord, I have to become a missionary. I have to leave my family. I have to go try and convert sea turtles. I'm going to become a eunuch. And so, terror, which is really interesting because Clark kind of threw a piece into this that I was not ready for, and I should have because I knew who was reading scripture. Clark said in that booming voice, Cornelius? And when he said it like that, I was sitting right here, and that's not my name, and I sort of got scared. <laughs> so maybe Clark is on to something. Maybe the, the, those angel of the Lord spoke in such a way that gave Cornelius more of a reason to think he was in trouble. But all being said, there is a need for this moment to, I think, process through what it is we're going through before we project what it is we think is going on. And Cornelius fell for it, and I fell for it. And unfortunately, we would have been really helpful. It would have been helpful to utilize the gritty first draft. Now, quick side note for anybody who is interested in looking up Brene Brown and looking up the term gritty first draft, please be warned, I have edited Brene's language. Brene writes on her own bio that she does not believe that prayer and cussing have to be mutually exclusive. So when you punch in into Google, gritty first draft, and Google says, did you mean dot, 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 and another word comes up that let's say for the adults in the room is a word that sounds like gritty, but isn't gritty, please be warned that I told you right now to be very careful with that. And if language is an issue, be careful with that. Her books are great. Her TED Talk is fantastic. She does change that language. Just want to make sure that is clear before you get into the next piece. But I want, to, I want to compare what happened to Cornelius in this first part of Acts 10 with what happens to Peter starting in verse 9. Because they go through a pretty similar thing. We read of Peter's experience the next day, this time at the 6th hour, for those mathematicians or engineers in the room, 6th hour of the day, noon. Nailed it. I think if Elijah would have shouted out loud, he would have got it right too, but he wasn't paying attention, so now he's two for three for the day. Pay attention, my friend. You can't just play music and then fade off. Not how it works here. I'm watching. <laughs> In this situation, the sixth hour at noon, Peter is apparently so hungry that he falls into a trance. Show of hands, anybody ever gone past hangry to hungnosis? Just Brigida. Maybe Peter. 
Peter might be having that moment right now, which is maybe a good time to say quick shout out to Juanis, who did our refreshments today. If you need something so that you don't break into a hunger-based trance, please help yourself. As you exit the building, I will not take it personally. If you don't come back with a mouthful of food, I will. But Peter, who is in this trance, has this moment. While Peter is sitting waiting for lunch, a blanket full of lizards and penguins falls from the sky, at which point a voice says to Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Typical Tuesday stuff, am I right? Peter, not responding in terror, it says, says to the voice, voice, I would never kill or eat anything on this because I don't eat anything that is not clean. To which the voice responds, how dare you? Who do you think you are? Where do you get the nerve? Don't call anything that I've made common or unclean. Learning the lesson, the blanket of penguins and lizards goes back into the sky and returns, and the voice repeats, and it goes back. Comes down a third time because it's Peter, so you got to really work with our guy here. The third time the blanket leaves and fades into heaven. And it says after that in verse 17, Peter was inwardly perplexed. And I think I would be too. Because <laughs> that's odd. But I want to say this, the difference between Cornelius and Peter is the potential for what happens next. We know Cornelius saw and heard something he wasn't expecting and immediately replied in terror. Peter saw and experienced something he wasn't expecting three times and was able to at least fix his face. Like he didn't do this. He just inwardly went, but nobody could see it. The reality is Peter's perplexion in this story is a potential for a precursor to fear. Unlike Cornelius, Peter didn't let it get to the next step. I believe many people are afraid of what they don't understand. But unlike Cornelius, who didn't understand something, the first thing Peter did was take this as a signal to study, to wait, to be patient. And Peter does that. And because of that, the rest of the story in Acts 10 is an incredible journey. Peter, who is the exact same guy who decided, I can get out of this boat, I can walk on water, then does for a couple of steps and takes his eye off the ball and he goes directly underneath in the middle of a storm. That happened in the past and Peter has learned something. He has learned that when something doesn't necessarily feel right or look right and I don't understand what's going on, hang tight. Something is coming. And so Peter hung on and he decided he was gonna follow this out. And there are so many places where this story could have gone completely haywire. But instead, if you track the story all the way to the end of chapter 10, we get to the result that we here in this church are waiting for, in that Peter follows the Spirit all the way until a moment when the Spirit descends and speaks and causes a room full of non-believing Gentiles to be baptized in the name of the Spirit. And that's what we're waiting for 
And along the way, it can get a little odd. If we break this down, there are so many places. What if Peter had decided in this moment, blanket full of lizards and penguins? That's weird. Grab a Snickers. Because you're not yourself when you're hungry. And he eats the Snickers and he goes about the rest of his day. Peter blames this on a hung hallucination. But he doesn't. He hears the knock at the door and Peter, who's really good at denying people, could have denied that he was Peter or that Peter was here right now or he would take a message and he could have gone about his day. He could have gotten super weirded out by Cornelius. If you read verses 25 and 26, Peter shows up. He goes, hey, is Cornelius here? And Cornelius falls on the floor and starts worshiping Peter. And Peter going to be like, that's weird, and left. But he didn't. He also realized he was in a room full of cops, and he was actively breaking the law. And he names the law that he has broken. And he could have just been like, I don't want to go to jail. Thanks for having me. But he doesn't. Peter clearly doesn't even know the full picture. It takes him all the way to the end of this story in verse 29, for Peter to finally admit, I don't even know what's going on right now. So you tell me. At which point the Holy Spirit goes, perfect. Let's get to work. But Peter had to fight through all of that awkwardness to find his way to this moment. Peter lets patience and curiosity and willingness win the day. And because of that, he does not create fear, he does not create confusion, and it does not interrupt what the Spirit is here to do. Peter let his, his gritty first draft get in front of an editor and become a second draft and a third draft and a fourth draft until finally God said, we'll take it from here. Your final draft is over and the Spirit descends on the moment. And the Holy Spirit can only work in those moments because Peter fought through these things. Now in my own personal life, I learned a second lesson I had a very strange encounter, and I would say, at the end of it, I felt very perplexed. Let me tell you about it. One day, I woke up, and to my surprise, I found a vacuum cleaner in the middle of my kitchen. And that's not where I left it. And I'm the only human being in the house. Confused, perplexed. I take the vacuum and I put it back where it was across the room. And underneath the vacuum, I find a silicone wedding ring. And so I put it back and I go about the rest of my day. The next day, I wake up in the morning, only human being in the house. Guess what I found in the middle of the kitchen? A vacuum cleaner. And I rolled it back to its position, and you know what I found underneath it? A silicone wedding ring. That's weird. Perplexing. The next day I woke up. Can anybody guess where this story goes? Where's it go, Ellie? It's the same story. I don't know what's going on. Only the third time, Ellie, you know what I found next to 
the vacuum cleaner before I moved it? My cat, who is at this point upside down with both paws underneath the vacuum cleaner, reaching for my silicone wedding ring. And now I'm really perplexed. And I take a closer look at the ring. And this thing has been demolished. There are holes in it. There are bite marks. There are cuts. I brought it with me so you could see it. I'm going to pass this around. So you can understand the gravity of the assault my cat put on this ring. And I don't know why. And my perplexion led me like Peter to do some studying. I also want to say that's not my cat and that's not a picture of our wedding day, but it's so close and so perfect I had to use that image. But that's what that cat looked like when I picked that ring up. He was furious. He wanted to check me into a wall. He was so mad. And I didn't understand why. And you know what the internet said? Lots of things. Cats sometimes like the texture of rubber. They sometimes like the smell of silicone. Sometimes your cat's a weirdo. And I don't know which one it is. Honestly, I don't. And until I get more information, I've decided to be like Peter. And instead of treat my cat like he's crazy, and he might be, I'm just very careful about where I put my ring and I also can't understand why he's a hoarder hiding things under the vacuum cleaner that he feels the need to move. Now, the best part is I see the ring still going around. Hopefully, everybody gets a chance to see it. If you drop it at any point, don't worry about it. I'll just bring my cat here. He will find it very quickly. I don't know what to do with patients in a lot of places. And I'll be honest, my perplexion was very strange to have in this moment. But if I wasn't careful, and if I wasn't like Peter, and I didn't just wait for more information, there's a good chance that I could come to the conclusion that my cat does not believe in the sanctity of marriage. Because that seems within the realm of possibility. Because it's the same wedding ring. And he's destroyed it. That cat must hate marriage. Or maybe he doesn't understand, and maybe he likes the taste of it, or the smell of it, or the feel of it on his tiny kitten teeth. But the reality is this, if I was to decide to be afraid of that moment and to let my perplexity change into anger, I would treat that cat differently. And I don't want to. And I don't want to walk around thinking that the cat is plotting against my relationships. Depending on the translation of your Bible, the words do not be afraid exist somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 different times. And over many thousands of years to many different cultures and people, God repeats this phrase over and over and over, just so that we are reminded not to let the fear overtake us, not to take what we see, not to take what we feel and bring it to the bank right away and assume that it's the final answer to take the idea that our first draft is our final draft. Do not be afraid means leave space for that which is not obvious. 
John 14, verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Joshua 1, 9, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Mark 6, verse 50, for they all saw him and they were terrified, but immediately he spoke to him and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Revelation 1, 17 and 18, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and hell. So what's the point? Why all these didactic stories? Why the reminders not to fear? Is it because we all have access to the news? Is it because we understand what it's like to live through a pandemic? Sure. It's also because locally we're dealing with a series on waiting. And waiting is super hard. Waiting after waiting for what feels like a period where we were already waiting before makes it even harder. And in those moments we can become unnerved we can become perplexed, and that can cause impatience, and impatience causes anger. And if we let it, we can jump to conclusions here in this church that just aren't there. And then our gritty first drafts get dropped into social media. They get passed along as gossip before and after a connect group. God says, do not become a prisoner to your fear to think that you're somehow shackled by this thing that you need to let out because somebody deserves to hear it. Do not let your confusion shackle you to the things that make you afraid. Jeff talked about these last week where the sentence starts with the leadership here is terrible, dot, dot, dot. Don't trust the conference because dot, dot, dot. Did you hear the thing about the board chair? Dot, dot, dot. In those moments when these things happen, we confuse fear and knowledge. We confuse gossip with wisdom. And we lose the virtue of patience in the chase to find finality in a story that is still in progress. The reality is this. If the spirit has not arrived, then the story isn't finished. If God has not yet spoken, then the conversation isn't over. If Jesus hasn't come back yet, then more patience is required. But fear not, friends. God has a bona fide track record of showing up, even when you least expect it. So be reminded. Do not be afraid. He will come again. And that is not to say there are not reasons to be afraid. There are not reasons for fear to exist. There are plenty of reasons for fear to exist. But it is to say that when you encounter this fear, do not be afraid. Take this as an invitation to be patient. Peace is still coming. At some point, the Lord will show up and he will call your name. At some point, God will speak to this church 
and a vision will emerge for us to follow. So take the time now, while we have it, to practice the virtue of patience, while it has still been afforded to us, because we need to be ready for when he calls. Patience is a virtue. It's not a game. It's a promise that's made for you, a gift that he gave to all of us, a reminder to wait before we go, and know that he left us somewhere safe in the baptismal waters where we walked in willingly. In that water, we have been washed of the fear of sin. He will make a way for us when the Spirit comes, and there's a track record to prove it. Because until that point, the cross was undefeated. Right up until their toes touched the water, there was no path through it. Captives who were held behind bars were destined to die in prison because they were chained to impenetrable walls. But three days later, friends, God walked out of that tomb and left it empty, and the cross is no longer undefeated. When they waded into that water, that's when the sea parted. The fortress stood no chance against any force of the earth until it began to shake, and then the walls came crumbling down. So I say again, do not be afraid. God has already said that he is the beginning and he is the end. And even when you can't see it, even when you cannot feel it, you are not alone. This is not over. I want to conclude with one more story, one more lesson that would be learned differently if we learned it in impatience. But I'm going to flip to Daniel chapter 3. The Bible in front of you has it in page 878. I'm going to read it just like this, starting in verse 13. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered them and said, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready to hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, the air raid sirens, or any kind of music, Fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace be heated up seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Skipping to verse 23, and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. And King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished as he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar came to the door of the fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair on their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, set aside their king's command, and yielded their bodies, rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Blessed be the God of the Ukrainian people. Blessed be the God of the Boulder Church. And blessed be the God of anyone whose heart is under fire. Grace and peace to you all. From the God who was and is still with us and will be with us throughout it all. The Lord bless you and keep you.